Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of the musicians is lost and restricted. Having both dealt in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. No topic will be out of bounds as we are committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle and hope to do so with some fantastic guests along the way. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. Welcome to the first episode of 2022. Um, today it's just me uh, interviewing Ollie because when we recorded this back in December, uh, Rebecca was unwell with COVID. Um, she's now fine. Um, and I just wanted to say before we get started, welcome to a new year of podcasts and content and raising awareness and all of that. Um, I feel like this year we're more excited than ever about what's coming up one of the biggest um sort of new developments which to be honest rebecca has most of the credit for is that we've created a resources part of our website so please go and check that out it's at thingsmusiciansdonttalkabout.com slash resources and that has basically a page as a page for major mental health conditions such as anxiety depression eating disorders there are also pages for lgbtq plus support there's a page about financial worries there's a page about getting support for um music related injury as well and if you're not sure others please go and check that out hopefully the resources on there will be helpful for you or for someone else or if someone you know is going through something and are struggling to find the right kind of support whether that's financial or emotional please do um send them to our resources page because the dream with it was to have a space where you know we could support people in that way so just letting you know that that's there please also follow our instagram at tmdta podcast please follow us on twitter the handle is exactly the same there's also a facebook um which I am much worse at updating, um, but it is it is there. Give it a follow. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please um, review. That would be beautiful. On we go to my awesome conversation with Ollie West. West, welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About. How are you today? Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be here because we've been trying to plan this for some time now. And it just so happens that I'm isolating with um, COVID. Stay away, basically. You, know, you can't <laughs> catch it from where you are. Yeah, but um, stay away at all, co- all costs. Um, but yeah, so I've not driven myself um nuts yet but there are eight days to go so it's quite exciting for us really because you are officially the first probably non-classically trained or classical musician that we've had on the podcast so welcome well thank you it's an absolute pleasure that's great it's great to have you here I mean I think it's it's um obviously we started it off mostly for classical music as that's my experience but actually the popular music world is something that's given me huge inspiration and given many of us I think a huge inspiration because of the greater openness there seems to be um surrounding mental health mm. which is something that we're going to probably focus our talk around but is that something that you've experienced like do you think your popular music friends are more open than your sort of classical music friends 
I, I think that was my experience at, um, at music college, certainly. So I was at the Royal Northern College in Manchester, so, and I studied on the popular music degree. And the great thing about that degree was it was right alongside a world-class classical performance degree. So what you got was very high echelon of players, and so you got to really see the insights. I guess it was so small as well, both the classical course and the pop. I mean, there were 30 of us in our year on our popular music course, so it was teeny, teeny, tiny. Uh, and I think, I think the thing that I noticed, maybe it was down to, you know, tutors and things like that. And, you know, a lot of our tutors were sort of players and, you know, people who played for big names in the industry and produced and things like that before they were educators, if that makes sense. Whereas I think a common path in classical music is to do the degree, to do the master's, to, to teach. And a lot of it is like you, you learn and learn and learn and you teach and teach and teach. And um, I think maybe that was part of it because the teachers that, you know, you've had um, my other half, Ray Harvey, you had her on the podcast a few months ago now, but I remember her teacher compared to mine, who was this sort of really chilled, lovely guy, you know, big, long hair, played with the brand new heavies, keyboard player. I'd come around to a studio, we'd drink tea and jam and talk about music and our lessons would always run like nearly an hour over how long they should have because I was the last one of the day. When you talk, think about that compared to Ray's experience of having lessons where there were points where she was not happy to be going, you know, and like nervous of her. T- I don't think you should be nervous if you're a teacher. That's, that's mm. madness, isn't it? I think especially at that point where you are developing so incredibly, you're quite vulnerable. So it doesn't surprise me that it's that mental health and feeling like you can't talk about being upset or being this and that is a is a more of a thing in classical music because I get this impression that sometimes people's experiences, especially in music college and experiences with teachers can be so much, well, crazy, worlds apart, really. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we're going to talk more about your kind of background, but I mean, from the notes that you gave me, um, you basically explained that you'd begun kind of being classically trained and then suffered with what you kind of now describe as panic attacks or anxiety, which kind of made you decide to become um, self-taught or to follow a different path musically. Can you talk a bit about that experience with starting being trained classically and then moving into being self-taught? Yeah, of course. Well, I start, so I start, I'm a piano player. My was my principal study. Um, and I started playing the piano when I was seven because um, I honestly, I can't remember why, but um, that's when I started. And I went through, it was a, it was kind of a slow process, my teacher. I went through every single, you know, prep book one, prep book two, do the prep test. And I did my prep test and I did my grade one. And I remember quite distinctly being about 11 and preparing for my grade two. And it may be being a week before. And at the time, just, not thinking of it as how I reflect on it now and thinking of it as like just, oh, I was really scared, so I didn't do it. But actually, I had a, you know, I had probably what was a panic attack. I was really anxious and crying and couldn't get myself together and was angry at the piano. And, you know, I was very, very lucky throughout my time growing up to have A, parents who were both in the arts. My mum was a professional dancer. My dad was a professional actor and a singer. And so they understood that kind of thing. And they said to me, they said, well, don't do it. If it's, we'll, we'll cancel it. That's it. And there was never any pressure to do it. So I didn't. And I thought that would kind of be the end of me learning the piano. But what I discovered was uh, I kind of liked jazz music and I liked bands and I liked rock and roll and I liked improvising. And so from that point onwards, I kind of steered myself really. And my piano learning sort of, wasn't from grades but it would kind of came from records and listening to records and putting them on particularly you know records by like billy joel who basically i learned the piano by learning his entire catalog and you know and that that method got me to music college so from grade one so there was something to be said about billy joel 
he's a talented folk. <laughs> but yeah, that that experience, I remember feeling petrified and so much learning was based off, you know, and even my experience is talking to adults now, it's like, so what grade are you on the piano? I was like, I have a first class degree from a music college, but I have grade one. What does what does that mean to you? If I said grade one, you'd assume one thing, but as in you can't judge people off grades. And I learned that quite young when I realized, oh, I can't judge myself as a piano player based off the fact there's a piano player here who is grade eight. But I know I could, you know, I knew to a degree I could play better than them. That was, I've always thought grades were a bit odd. And if they work for people, amazing. And if they don't, I don't think any child, especially at that young an age, should ever feel pressured in doing it. Do you think that that's had a positive impact, you know, not being pressured by your parents to go through and suffer, I suppose, the the pains of graded exams? Because obviously you're a performer now. That is a big part of what you do. You do shows, you, you sing in public. Do you think that that is something that has positively influenced you in the performing you do now? Or do you still feel that you have an element of, of panic or of performance anxiety? Uh, I, I don't get performance anxiety so much anymore. I think when I feel out of my... Definitely there have been times where I felt very out of my comfort zone in terms of my ability to read. Because the thing I also learned that I had when I was sort of 17, 18 was I learned I had perfect pitch. And I was like, oh, that, that makes sense as to why I could pick up, you know, teach myself quite easily. But it did lead to a couple of situations where I'd be on gigs and have sheet music thrown in front of me. And I'd never, ever needed, really needed it at all. And suddenly you're just like, ah, what? The, the piano's just like got 88 giant teeth and it's going to eat your hands. And there's this big sheet of dots that you're going to go, I don't know, I don't get it. I can't read it. I just couldn't process it. And definitely in those moments, I kind of experienced some level of performance anxiety. Yeah, a hundred percent. But you know, when I doing what I do at the moment, which a lot of it is, uh, you know, as you say, performance based and playing in a lot of my pay the rent work, as I, you know, there's the, your passion work, and as you pay the rent work, and a lot of my pay the rent work is, uh, you know, playing in clubs and bars and restaurants and at functions and corporate dues and things like that and uh, playing and singing. And I'm very comfortable in that world. I know what I'm doing. And so, you know, I don't get that kind of nervousness anymore. I guess the one regret I have about not being classically trained is that I can't sight read very well because I think I would like to be able to in retrospect. But who knows? I might completely damage my head. (laughs) It might ruin me. (laughs) It'd be really interesting if you could briefly explain going from being self-taught to making the decision to um, undertake the popular music performance degree and, you know, mm. your the steps you've taken to become a singer-songwriter. Just sort of take us from your, I suppose, teenage years up to the point at which you, you started that degree. I kind of ended up on that degree by accident, to be honest. Sixth form was kind of the place I discovered classical music that I really enjoyed for the first time. And so, you know, I discovered Claude Debussy, really, who was one of my favourites, you know, of all time. And I fell big, like deeply in love with Claude Debussy's music. And I was actually, when I applied to the Royal Northern College of Music's popular music course, it was because I was, the only reason I saw it was because I was applying for composition courses that's why I, and I just happened to see it there and I thought, oh, might as well. Having a, I didn't even look at the course. I just thought, oh, a popular music course in a, in a Royal Conservatoire, that sounds fun. Um, so I ended up on the course by accident because I was applying for composition courses. And I was only applying for composition courses because I heard music by like Debussy and Ravel and um, Faure and all that, those kind of French late 19th century composers and I just I fell head over heels and was trying to write things like that and when I I have a, a sort of quite bad habit of getting an idea and clinging hold of it and then sort of doing anything in my power to try and make it work so I was like oh I can I want to compose music like that and so I just spent 
85% of my time trying to write music like that. And then also writing like pop tunes, which was kind of weird and gigging at bars and open mics and things. So the pop course ended up being the right way down for me. I had a couple of offers for composition, but you know, I was very, very impressed by the RNCM and um, it, it was the, it was the right call in the end because being at the RNCM allowed me to do that kind of composition stuff and can push myself as a classical writer and as a composer and work more in like theatre mediums and stuff. And then, which is actually probably what I would have wanted to have done having got two years into a composition course and not really been able to pursue my career as a songwriter and a singer. So I think it's really interesting because there is this whole thing, isn't there, of like people that are not classically trained and maybe you don't read music fluently or or can you know or sight read fluently or whatever there's this whole thing of like oh do they do they understand the sort of core classical repertoire and where it's all come from but it's really interesting that like you have these two passions side by side of like discovering Debussy and you know Ravel and all of that and music which is really not only accessible but like really exciting and interesting to anyone if they want it to be but then also alongside that having this like real passion of pop music and I think that's maybe something that isn't said enough that actually like the two can be side by side and many pop musicians really love elements of classical music ever since then I've I've really um being at the RTL actually another great thing was I got to watch loads of classical music live and I got to go see Ray and all sorts of things and discover amazing music and you know listen to like you know, I loved, you know, fell in love with people like Mahler and Vaughan Williams and Elgar and stuff. And, you know, not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a niche classical, you know, I don't know much about classical music. I don't pretend to be a expert. I think I'm an enthusiast. Uh, and I love trying to emulate parts of it and sounds and harmonic structure and things like that in what, in elements of bits into what I kind of write and you know that's a massive I find it massively inspiring and um but yeah I guess coming back slightly to the grades thing that's where I wish I maybe could read music because I think I would probably be I could sit and read scores along with it rather than just going I could follow a melody when someone's playing it but you know like having an understanding of where the score is going and being able to sort of conduct it in your head almost is an entirely different kettle of fish that I probably am now at an age where I don't have the time or patience mm. for it. If I had more theory to back it up, I would probably like myself better than I do. <laughs> you know, you can always, you can always, I can always spend my time finding holes in things I do, but you know, I'll, I'll try, I'll try and avoid it. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so funny. Um, be really great now to talk about your journey with your mental health which you kind of explained mm. to me I, I don't know if you'd explain it as having started two years ago or if that's when it would, was at its worst but it'd be great maybe for you to explain the issues you've experienced and maybe how they began or what they felt like when they began you know when I say started two years ago I think that's kind of when the point at which I acknowledged it uh, when I think you know when I have look in retrospect now especially having had you know a lot of a lot of therapy <laughs> going back across the years I've I've suffered with some of the things that I reflected in therapy uh, since I can remember you know in terms of self-doubt not liking yourself self-confidence body confidence a lot of that has been all my life really um but sort of two years ago it it it's it didn't really come to a head there wasn't really a an event that sparked it but i think there was just a noticeable like i, I don't feel okay anymore like and i think i'd taken a lot of what I was feeling like as a, oh, okay, well, that just, that's just it. That's just the way it is, isn't it? So that's just life, you know, I don't have depression, blah, blah, blah. You know, you, I don't know. I think maybe, you know, 
to, to my discredit, I had a lack of belief in some of it and I didn't feel like it could happen to me or things like that. And maybe I was quite proud and I'll accept that now. <laughs> that I was probably proud, so which is why I didn't seek any kind of assistance earlier. Um, but yeah, about two years ago, I thought, okay, I'm going to need to, um, I'm going to need to chat to somebody about this and uh, kind of, it was able, what it, that was able to do was kind of categorize things for me and be like, and then be like, oh, well, it actually sounds like you're really, you have quite severe anxiety. And um, while you're at it, here's some depression and uh, side of this and, you know, being sort of slowly served this meal of shit. I didn't know what to do with really, <laughs> you know, like this, this big platter of like, all you can eat mental health conditions, uh, all of which somewhat apply to me. And I was like, ah, okay. So, you know, when you go to a doctor and they tell you you're, you know, it's quite on the NHS. They make you feel like a chart, don't they? And like a, the scale between zero and eight, how are you feeling uh, when you're, uh, how would you say your interest is it? And you're like, well, is this? And then they go, oh, you scored 14 out of 28, which means, you're this likely to kill yourself. And you're like, well, what, what does that mean? And like, honestly, they're like, Oh, we put you at sort of medium. Anyway. Um, the point it came to a head was probably about a year and a half ago where, which was timely, not deliberately. And I don't think due to the pandemic, but kind of when the pandemic started, that's probably when it came was at its worst. And I was at my parents' house and there were some very, very dark points in there where I I hesitate to say, well, I, I don't know why I hesitate to. I, I probably was, I was suicidal at that point. Uh, but, but then recognized it and was like, I need to, um, I need to not do that. You know, I, it scared me a lot. Your sort of fear of like, oh, I don't want to do that to myself. And that was quite important um, because it made me go, okay, I actually need to not do that because that would be pretty bad for everyone involved. You think at the time, and it's um, a very, quite an easy solution to a, like an escape, but um, you know, it uh, doesn't quite work like that because uh, you escape forever and that's not what you want. Actually, mm. uh, well, certainly for me, that's not what I wanted, actually. I think what I wanted was to click my fingers and just sort of be in a white room with uh, some fruit or something and just chill out for a few days and not have any problems. But that's not how the world works. So instead of doing that, <laughs> instead of ending up in a white room, uh, you know, I sought some help. And I've had quite a lot of different types of therapy, some of which have been success, more successful than others. I'd say, you know, obviously there's different strokes for different folks. The therapy I'm having at the moment is far more uh, reflective on your past and looking at, like, why you feel things and why you are like you are and how you change your perspectives, whereas a lot of what I had before was CBT, which was going, oh, okay, you feel this, these are techniques to deal with it, which short-term, I think, was like, oh, okay, I can, uh, I can control this to a degree. And then like, after another year, you're going, like, okay, well, I'm, this is still controlled, you know. Mm. And, uh, and so now I'm at a point where I, I, do, I do still have therapy. I'm feeling, ah, well, you know, I feel like I am existing better and I understand a lot of what I am better. Uh, I am on medication. I'm not very good at taking it, um, but I am on it. <laughs> um, I think you touched on so many like really important things yeah thank you so much for sharing that and especially about the medication and struggling to take it thing because that is really that is that you're not alone in that it's it's a really interesting one and I think as well the thing you said about it's a really good way you put it of like it really scared you so you kind of were scared into doing something about it because you realized it wasn't what you really wanted but it was like a wake-up call for mm something being really wrong which I think is a brilliant way to describe it because actually that really normalizes it it's like 
And the, the way you described it as well is like, I kind of wanted just to be in a white room. Like, that's a really good way of explaining. I always explained it as like, I don't want to die, but I just want to go to sleep and wake up in like a month when it's all over. And when I'm, you know, and, and even though these might not be like, you wanted to end it all, it's still like, those are kind of in the same league of like suicidal thoughts Mm. Um, because they do mean you don't want to be in your current reality, you know. Um, but I'm really, really grateful that you shared that because I think, especially in the pandemic, there were times I felt the exact same way. Yeah, it's like it's a difficult thing to put into words. But I was, I'm just so pleased that you managed to like realize that wasn't what you really wanted. Mm. Well, I think I, I still, and you know, you, there are. It doesn't ever like go. You know, I think a lot of these things you can learn to put at bay and you can learn to exist with. Uh, the way that the therapist I talked to at the moment described it was suicidal, ide- suicidal ideology. Mm. So this idea of, you know, escaping it all, when actually the reality, like the reality of suicide, suicidal reality is death, which is actually what you do. You don't want death. You want, you want escape. Uh, mm. But the form of escape the most the the one way you can think to escape is via this other route which is not you know but then when you actually come on to it no that's that's you know and you know there were points where they were close there were close calls but you were like but you know i always was like probably isn't the right thing to do you know um yeah probably probably in the in a good thing to do also uh probably not just keep milking the dog in a dark time, it can it can take up a lot of your thoughts. You know, it's just something that crosses your mind more than it than it should. Does that make sense? I don't know if that was mm. the same for you, but it can be something that some days, yeah, is, is it takes up a large part of your brain. And I think people might not understand that it's not necessarily that you that you always want it, but it is something that's very difficult to like make shut up when it's clearly something mm. that you that your brain is is thinking it wants or thinking it needs in order to get peace. But I'd absolutely love if you'd be comfortable to kind of talk a bit more specifically about, you know, what you maybe experienced back then and maybe what you experienced day to day with your depression. Like, what does it look like? And maybe what did it look like at the start? Was it just a general feeling of like low mood or how would you kind of describe it to people? Uh, I think in the beginning it was, it spiraled itself quite quickly because I wasn't sure what it was and combined with quite severe anxiety as well, which was all, you know, and my anxiety stems from me feeling like I'm not good enough. And that is all through, you know, as a musician, as a performer, as a, as a writer, as a person, as a, you know, caregiver as a boyfriend as a driver you know it literally in lots of stems it's quite deeply you know you'll be having to it's quite deeply rooted in me uh so the combination of especially in the beginning really not understanding what i was feeling and why i was so low and feeling like i should be grateful for what i did have and the good things but then still being angry that i was depressed coupled with not knowing they'd spiral quite easily because I'd be then become so worried about it. And then I'd be angry with myself about it. And then that would make me more, you know, so in the beginning it was very, very, very like loud. This is probably the only way I could describe it in my head. It just felt constant and loud and all the time just going into your sort of skull, like white, almost like white noise. Like regardless of what I was doing, there was something there. And when and during the pandemic, actually, I worked quite a lot as a I, I started delivery driving for a supermarket, you know, for Tesco's, other supermarkets are available. Uh and the problem was in in uh in the van, you're on your own, like all day. Uh you know, nine hours, like, so you know, nine hours in a van and you saw people every, you know, when you did your deliveries, but it was a lot of alone time. And especially in a, in a weird world where everyone was like shielding or behind a door or like, you know, 
It was very, it was very odd and no one really knew what's going on. And I think in those periods, I would really work myself up. I could really spiral myself to the point where I'd have to pull over and like stop and go for and walk and wander around and stop working because I was like, I'm going to, I can't drive this vehicle anymore. So guess that plus a lot of therapy is what I experience now, which is I, you know, I live day to day. I don't, I'm not consumed by those thoughts anymore. Uh, I'm not consumed by depression and sadness and it doesn't affect my every, you know, it literally would affect everything I did. I think what I experience now is a thing that I am notorious for, which is overworking myself. Um, so I am tired a lot, but, and that's a sort of separate thing, but in terms of my actual depression and anxiety, they are, they are present. I know how to handle my anxiety slightly better. I think the thing for me at the moment, especially with the world coming, well, I say that as I sit here with COVID uh, on the day after the highest number of cases in the whole UK, uh, I say as the world's coming back to normal, I think this whole like, I feel like I have to take every gig or else I'm not good enough, I'm not working enough or I'm not going to earn enough money or this anxiety, that's what's really pervading my head at the moment. But um, through therapy, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about my depression. I learned a lot about where that stems from in terms of my experiences as a teen and an adult and all sorts. Um, and I kind of learned how to, um, obviously the meds do help, but, you know, I've learned to a degree how I can control that. And the only times where I feel like I can't control that are where really I know I'm too tired and too busy. And I know that's relatively self-inflicted. So, um, yeah, definitely definitely got a much broader understanding of my mental health and I do and I feel to a degree you know mental health in general and how things affect other people's things and, you know so yeah that's kind of where I was around that I really like um the way you explained kind of that overwork thing as like thinking as a freelancer or as someone that has you know gigs in fits and starts that you can have periods of time where you feel like you're not doing enough and that's actually something that Rebecca she might have shared it on her Instagram I slightly wish she was here right now to give her like two penny worth on it <laughs> she's also got COVID and I don't think she's <laughs> in a great place but oh, um, no. um she was saying yeah she really struggles with that thing of like even though she's doing lots of different things and they cumulatively, they all make her very tired. It's like, she doesn't quite feel as though it's enough or like it, it should make her as tired or as worn out as it does. Like, well, I don't know. It's this whole thing, isn't it? It's like what is enough as a musician? What is enough in this world where things are being canceled and rescheduled? And it's, it's a really, really tricky time to feel like the work you're doing is either enough or fulfilling or, the right kind of work or, or whatever your experience like in the delivery truck and like having to pull over and mm. kind of collect yourself like I think that's something I've experienced so many times in like different places and was I'm just wondering was that more of an anxiety kind of induced thing yeah 100% so I started having quite bad panic attacks and anxiety attacks so um, I had to, I ended up with another set of meds to sort of put those at, like beta blockers, sort of put those at bed because um, I could, I could roll my, while I was saying that's firing, I could roll myself up so much that it would just, I wouldn't be able to breathe, you know, like. That's something actually, like the worst place I've experienced that has been in like a concert, like a classical concert, which actually used to give me a lot of shame because oh. I'd be like, I should be enjoying this right now, but it, I would honestly feel like I was either going to lose my mind or like pass out or something because it, it's, it's often mm. situations where you feel like either you can't escape or like, as you say, like there's no space to just release. It's really yeah. interesting the way you explain that. Um, but I also kind of would like to hear your opinion or your 
experience with being like a man with mental health problems and a man who has experienced suicidal thoughts um just because there aren't many men who are happy to well maybe there are maybe it's getting better but I mean there are there's a massive problem basically as you obviously know male suicide and men feeling like mental illness is either a failure or something that can't be discussed or whatever but were any of those kind of toxic thoughts in your head at the start before you decided you needed help was that anything that was a barrier you think either your gender or the way you've been brought up to view mental health issues yeah potentially potentially like I had a belief certainly that you know and to an extent I'm still slightly guilty of the belief that I need to look after everybody as not not necessarily because I'm a man, but just because of how I'm built and in terms of how I am, you know, emotionally, structurally built and my, the kind of, my, you know, my, my father is one of the most wonderful, caring people in the whole world and will look after you and take you and you take anyone under their wing. And they're both, my, both my parents are, you know, incredibly high up executive head teachers of primary schools, you know, so they are, they both have always, it's this whole nurture thing. So I think in my life, certainly in the groups of friends in my, in my inner circles and stuff, I've always seen myself as the one who should be the strong one who should be looking after everybody who should be taking care. I feel like some of that, especially when it comes to like my ability to look after Ray, uh, who you know if you've only just tuned in is my other half um the fact that i i felt quite early on i used to feel like i was failing as a boyfriend because i was not looking after her like i couldn't fulfill that part of my role and perhaps that's a perhaps that's a gender stereotype and obviously yes men are notoriously not very good at talking about crap like that you know I think I'm in quite a unique circle where we we are relatively open with each other and a few of my friends have had some quite um, unfortunate and traumatic events happen to them and have been handling their own issues. So we have all been quite open with each other in my inner circle. But, you know, certainly with my family, it's quite a new thing for us to be talking about because when I had my breakdown, I had it at home. And I hadn't lived at home in six years when I came back for covid um so I hadn't lived there at all and my parents and my brothers kind of had to just sort of watch me kind of tr- crum- crumble really like a sort of shell of me uh and I think that was a bit that was quite an eye-opener for everybody involved because it's not that we hadn't talked about it at home it just just wasn't really ever an issue like or at least I didn't think it was it was like I didn't think that was something I'd ever have to deal with you know, mm. rather naive, naively um but in terms of being a man and experiencing those kind of things yeah it's um i don't know you still wouldn't see certain things but i think it is getting better i think people are talking more you know i've noticed that family members i'm i'm relative i'm well i'm pretty much well as you can hear i'm i've done i was quite ashamed of it for a while i was quite hide it uh i i can't be bothered anymore hattie i'm just like <laughs> i'm just you know this is this is this is what i experienced this is my life this is what i've been through and if you um if people are scared off by that then whatever they'll come around i think and they just need their time i don't i, I don't what i don't think is helpful maybe is I think people who aren't ready to talk yet just need time. And I think I know a few people in my close circles who I feel like, you know, are, I don't think they're toxic for thinking the way they do. I think, but I think, you know, there'll be moments where they'll go, so well, what, what, what was it like when you went to um, the therapist for the first time? Because and you'd be like, oh, well, it's, you know, like this and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, right, yeah, yeah, hmm. And you're like, okay, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. 
you know, it's not shaming people for having not spoken. It's people who are choosing to finally speak and congratulating them rather yeah. than going, ah, don't, don't bother all love, let it all out, you know, because people will be, could be overwhelmed by that. It's just thing. I feel like by being a, a, a man who is open about stuff like this, I I would like to think that maybe there is someone listening to this who is a man and, you know, from a very privileged, cis, straight, white man, you know, I've, I didn't feel like I had a right to talk about anything that was wrong, but actually mental health affects everyone and you just got to, you just got to chat about it and it doesn't matter what you do or where you come from, just just talk to someone if you're not okay, you know, that's mm. like fine. I think, I think you have a really important thing to say though as well, as well coming from, you know, a family where I think I hear and I relate to this thing of like, it's not necessarily that mental health was something you couldn't talk about. It's just like, wasn't necessarily something you thought you'd ever have to deal with face to face, like and actually watch mm. someone in your close circle struggle in the way that you've clearly struggled and and from hearing you know what my sisters and my parents have watched from me as well I think it's a very similar thing where it's like you watch someone you know you think you know inside out and have this experience that's completely invisible and they're explaining to you things they're feeling and saying and I mean at least for me mine are completely weird and irrational and I really feel like I'm very distant from everyone around me um but do you feel like it has brought you closer in any way or, I mean, it sounds like maybe you've opened their eyes to mental illness and how it can happen to anyone, but has it in any way like brought you closer to people through opening up? I I suppose so. I suppose I was living very, very independently of my family pre-COVID. Not in that I wouldn't talk to them. Not, not in that I didn't love them and I didn't want to be here. I was just, you know, living and existing and, that whole experience of being at home during a pandemic at my family home was eye-opening for sort of all of us, really. Um, it was a very unique experience and probably not one we'll forget quickly. So, yeah, I think to the extent that whole thing and the fact I happened to have my sort of the worst period, if you like, during that time, was uh, quite eye-opening and sort of, yeah, definitely saw different sides to each other that we wouldn't have probably if I was dealing with that on my own in Manchester. Mm. So, yeah, I think I think, I think so. Mm. And do you think therapy is something that you see a kind of end goal with or is it something that you think is part of you feeling just well day-to-day? Uh, I'd like to not be in therapy at some point. I think there's only so much you can talk and talk without coming to some kind of realisation or solution. I'm still waiting for that point where I'm okay to not have therapy. At the moment, I'm not there and that's all right. And lots of people won't be there and that's fine. And you should have it for absolutely as long as you need it. Just personally, I'd probably quite like to stop soon. (laughs) But... Um, if I and if I'm ready, I'm ready. If I'm not ready, I'm not ready. So, in terms of the day-to-day management of your mental health, um, apart from coming to a, a greater kind of self-acceptance, which is the, one of the most healing things you can do, um, is there anything that you have implemented or that you practice to stay mentally okay-ish? Well, I wish I had something like really good and you could be like oh wow that's so great you're doing that but um I, I don't really I'm I'm not I'm not very good at practicing what I preach that's that's what I've learned so um I can I could say things to the cow come home but what do I actually do and this seems really small but you know I um I got told in that sort of weird nuts period that I had so-called binge eating disorder which was basically being sad and eating and then regretting it and being sad and eating. And (laughs) And, um, my relationship with food, you know, I talked about earlier, uh, being a food enthusiast, which I am, and I love cooking 
And at the same time, everything I put in my mouth, I hate myself for. So um, trying, I guess, on a day-to-day basis to eat something and just enjoy eating it. I think I try and do that every day. Trying and eating something and not wanting to sort of rip it all out of my body, you know, uh, which was kind of how I feel about it. You know, when you ate something, it was like you could feel it hanging off your face. and You know, that's um, that kind of thing. So just trying to like go, ah, oh, I'm going to eat this. And it could be like Kit Kat or apple or prawn cracker or, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just eating something and going, hmm, that was good. And not thinking, oh, you shouldn't have eaten that. You're going to be a big fat bastard, you fat bastard. You know, it's funny yeah. when you do depression, isn't it? <laughs> but, but honestly, like that's what runs through your head. You're like, yeah, you know, yeah. it fuel it fuels this whole hating myself part of my anxiety thing. So um, if I can eat something like once a day and not regret it, then that's what I try and implement, I think. That, that is huge. I really don't think you should underestimate that. That is um, like a, that's a difficult thing to practice when you're struggling with an eating disorder and when that's something that is part of your experience. Yeah. I mean, with, just briefly going on about your experience with a, with an eating disorder, does it feel like was a coping mechanism for your depression mainly or has it been something on its own entirely? Uh, I think it's kind of related to a body dysmorphia kind of thing where and just hating how I looked, which kind of ties into the anxiety thing, I guess, and the depression thing. So yeah, they are all kind of weirdly intertwined, but um, I think a big, yeah, so it, it ties into that. Um, it's funny, really, because, you know, I had ther- I got referred to an eating disorder clinic who then told me it wasn't a bad enough eating disorder to, to be treated by the clinic. <laughs> and I was like, what, 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 what does an eating disorder... Yeah, but basically, if you're not anorexic or bulimic, they don't really... I, I, I guess, you know, for wanting to give people the benefit of the doubt, they probably don't have the resource, which is... Uh, just a grand, grand letdown and shame for, you know, to and shame on our government for letting that be the case. But not getting too political. Uh, but yeah, I basically got told you don't. Have, it's not a severe enough eating disorder in order for the eating disorder to treat it. I was like, well, who treats it then? They were like, uh, CBT. I was like, uh, okay. And even then, they didn't get in touch with me. I was on the waiting list for eleven months. Oh my which, so you know a lot of the stuff i've tried to you know i'm still dealing with a lot of the stuff about my eating habits and my weight and my body and learning to actually like what i look like mm-hmm. um but we're getting there slowly and surely is there anything you'd like to say to finish off any specific kind of I feel like I always ask this question. It's quite a mean question because it's like sum up your whole life story in <laughs> like a minute. But any kind of final thoughts? Well, yeah, just to kind of go off what you said, really. Like I didn't feel like I was entitled to be depressed. I wasn't allowed. I didn't feel like I deserved to be depressed or I had any right to be because of my circumstances, my life, you know, I live a very, you know, on the, on the face of it, I live a, a wonderful life and a very passionate and extraordinary life. And I have a lovely apartment. I have a lovely girlfriend. I have a lovely cat. I have a very nice family. I do things, you know, that doesn't, that, that is nothing to do with my mental health. And if you don't, if you're there, if you're listening and you feel like you don't have a right, you you are feeling depressed and you don't feel like you deserve to then it sounds odd saying you deserve to feel depressed now i look a reflection but because that's what i was going to say and i went that's a weird thing to say because no one should feel depressed but if you're feeling like that that's that's okay and it doesn't matter who you are where you're from what you're doing you are entitled to that feeling and please just don't be like shy like i was for four years feeling like I couldn't say anything because of what I had. Because otherwise you'll just be a bit screwed up like I am. Woohoo! I didn't see that coming, but I love it. (laughs) 
Don't be like me. The title of the episode is uh, You'll End Up a Bit Screwed Up Like Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is your warning now. <laughs> this, is your pre, this is your pre-podcast warning. <laughs> no. It's been such a, like, such absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming and enlightening us with your journey and your amazing story. So thank you. Well, what you're doing with this podcast is just extraordinary. And I really, really um, think it's so important. I have my What Would You Do Wear sticker on my keyboard. Oh, my God. (laughs) So um, it's seen the light of a few gigs at the moment. But, yeah, um, thank you so much for having me on to talk about my little corner of life. And um, just keep doing what you guys are doing because what you are doing is absolutely phenomenal. So brilliant. Absolutely power to your power to your elbow 100 percent. thank you. you ollie that's really kind of you i'll pass that on to rebecca as well and say and speedy recovery speedy recovery with your covid and good luck in oh isolation. yeah i've got eight days left to, how long did that kill of my isolation yeah, how long <laughs> yeah right <laughs> oh. you go oh yeah you need to tell everybody your social media and where they can find out about ollie west and the wildflowers Oh yeah, so yeah, that's the name of my ensemble. There's um, there's seven of us. Uh, we make nice music, I think. Um, you can find us on Facebook slash Ollie West Music. Instagram is Ollie West Music. Twitter is it's Ollie West, and Spotify. If you just, and all the other music things, if you type in Ollie West and present the wildflowers, you'll find us. There's a picture of me looking solemn, uh, and <laughs> yeah, please go have a listen and see what you think and all the rest and Dude, all that definitely. kind of stuff is appreciated. Yeah. It's beautiful, beautiful music. I've been, oh, I meant to say you. that to you before we started. I absolutely love your stuff. Honestly. Oh. I had a lovely well, little gander cool. through Spotify about a week ago. <laughs> now. It was lovely. It was really nice. Oh. You're such a talented couple. Yeah. She, well, she Ray's dead talented. Ray's one of these <laughs> annoying people, isn't she? Just picks up anything. She's so, she's so annoying. Bastard. Hate you, So annoying. Yeah. Hate you you for being good at life. Anyway.